Right. Uh, I guess I'll just get started. Um, thank you, everyone, for, for coming to this uh, session. My name is Tian Deng. I am the lead minister in Hanford, in the Hanford Church of Christ. I'm from Fresno, California, so I'm a California boy. Um, and I'm currently a student at Fuller. I really appreciate you all being here. Um, I want to share a little bit of my story. That, that this is my first time speaking at Fuller, and when I received the invitation, I was like, what in the world do I have to offer? Um, you know, I'm new in ministry, and I, I, you know, I haven't graduated seminary yet. You know, I'm, a, I'm a graduate uh, uh, from Harding. But uh, um, a lot of people are like, just share your story and maybe pull some points from there. And so I guess, so sorry, I'm going to have to bore you with my story a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a little bit of time to just uh, share my story, where I came from, and what I had to deal with. And after that, we're going to move forward and, and maybe pull some, some theological points that might help you in your ministries or even shape your view of how um, uh, you, you, you see people, hopefully. So may the Spirit be with us as we uh, join in together. Let's, let's open up with a prayer. God, we thank you so much for your, your power and your grace and your mercy you are a mover, Father, a mover of mountains, and you move our mountains, Lord, and your spirit transforms us so deeply. We're all so broken, God, um, and yet your grace just is, is overwhelming, and, and it heals us, Lord, and thank you for being our healer. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I am 29 years old, and I just wanted to share a, a beautiful picture of this boy, me. <laughs> look, look how cute he looks, right? This is me at Universal Studios. Um, you know, just looking like a happy, innocent, good kid. And, and life, for the most part, was relatively good as a kid, or at least I thought so. Uh, and so I, I tried to live life um, morally, ethically. This is a, a snapshot of my family. This is my father and my three sisters, my little cousin's in there. I don't know what he's doing in there. He just wanted to, you know, jump in. And that's me. I was probably 13 or so at the time. My mom's not in the photo. I don't know why she's not in the photo. We don't, we don't have very many pictures of us as a family. Um, but we look like a normal family on the outside. A good old, happy, Asian-American family that's successful. You see all the wonderful stuff back there, the oriental furniture. Um, and from the outside, that's what it looked like. But underneath that was so much, uh, were so many layers of hurt and so many layers of pain and so many layers of sin and abnormality. My parents uh, were Vietnamese refugees who fled from the Vietnam War. They were forcibly displaced. They dealt with significant trauma from the Vietnam War. A lot of people think uh, all Asians are immigrants, but they chose to come here. My parents didn't choose to come here. Um, there was, you know, Southeast Asian Americans were displaced, their homes destroyed. And with that came no assets, no resource, no nothing. Right? They had to start completely from scratch. They didn't know the English language. So they moved to Louisiana to try to build, build for themselves a life there. But then uh, um, they heard about the, the wonderful farming opportunities in California, the Central uh, Valley of California. So we moved to Fresno, California. Um, little did they know that the area that they moved to, Southwest Fresno, yes, there were farming opportunities, but it was the, one of the most impoverished areas in, in Fresno, uh, one of the most impoverished areas in, uh, in all of Cal uh, California. And so as a result, I've had to learn how to navigate living in this sort of impoverished communities alongside uh, my friends. So I grew up very violently. Uh, beginning in the fifth to sixth grade, I got into fights almost every year and, and got, got suspended every year, at least every other year. 
I thought this was the norm. And so I talked to my wife, and she's like, no. <laughs> Most middle school schoolers don't get suspended for getting into fights. This was what I knew, was fight to defend yourself. And, and it wasn't just that, right? Like, the community in which I grew up were, were filled with uh, immigrants and the poor and, and just, just people suffering so direly. And it wasn't just that. My parents were detached emotionally because of the trauma that, that they had dealt with coming from Vietnam, seeing people killed, um, you know, trekking across the sea, susceptible to pirate invasions. To this day, I don't know what my dad went through. Um, and so there was all of that going on. Um, and this began getting a little uh, worse. When I went into middle school, we couldn't wear certain colors. I don't know what kind of school you went to, but in the middle school I went to, you couldn't wear solid blue, solid brown, solid uh, uh, red, because if you wore solid colors, then you would be misconstrued as a gang member. This is middle school. Right? I used to work for, uh, as a youth minister in Florida. Like, you, you just didn't have that kind of stuff. Middle schoolers were just having fun. And so you couldn't wear certain colors. And so early in middle school, I learned about gangs such as Tiny Rascal Gang, which doesn't sound very tough, but is one of America's most notorious Asian-American gangs. Learn about the Bulldogs, right? If you're in California, you know about these. You learn about the Crips, Dog Pound, Diamond Crips. You learn about all these gangs. And as a, a middle schooler, having to navigate that was very tough. And my parents didn't necessarily know how to walk me through all of that because, well, they're just trying to survive. Things began to get increasingly worse uh, as I, I move on to high school. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to fit in. I don't know what masculinity looks like. What does masculinity look like for me as a 14-year-old boy? Well, for me, in the environment in which I grew up, it was to be tough. It was to be objectify women. It was to, uh, it was to do drugs. It was to get drunk. It was to claim or, or, or rep a set, a gang. And so I'm navigating all of that. My family's not there. Um, they're working day in and day out. And uh, this all begins to explode um, in this one moment. You see, for Asian Americans, family is profound. Like, like I know most people are like, yo, family is like important, right? Like we, for, for Asian Americans, like I lived with my grandparents, my uncle and aunt, my cousins, my niece, like everyone lived in the household. For Asian Americans, family isn't just something you're a part of, it's who you are. Your identity is wrapped up in your community, right? Not just family, but in your community. It's hard to separate the two. And so uh, when our family began fracturing, I started to feel this emptiness and this pain and it fractured even further. In this one moment I had, see my sister and I, uh, my sister Kim, which is uh, the one to the far right, to the left of my dad, she's a year younger than me. And uh, we used to compete to see who was worse. Um, it's like, you know, sibling rivalry. Well, we, we would see who could smoke the most or drink the most. And, but Kim was always better than me. <laughs> she emasculated me. <laughs> so... In the freshman year of high school, Kim was very rebellious. She smoked, she drank, she went off, she did all sorts of stuff. She was cutting herself. And she always got in trouble. It was worse for her than it was for me because I grew up in a very patriarchal household. And uh, there were double standards. One night, Kim doesn't come home from band practice. By the way, they say band nerds or geeks are... are 
or innocent. No, they're worse. <laughs> Don't judge the thug, judge the bad nerds. Um, Kim didn't come home. And, uh, and I'm sharing this story because I, I got their permission. And I wrote this in, in a blog. Kim didn't come home. It's 8, it's 9 p.m. She should be home at this time. We're out in West Fresno. Things aren't safe. And um, we're calling her friends. No one's picking up. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. My parents are worried. My grandparents are worried. We hear this loud bang. Worse than that. We open the door. Sorry. <laughs> we open the door. We see law enforcement. We don't see law enforcement. The law enforcement didn't come to our house. They go, are you the parents of Kim? Dang. My parents are like, yeah. Um, they arrest my father. And I'm like, what's going on here? They put him in the backseat of a cop car. And my dad is one of the most patient, hardworking men. He, 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 he works so tirelessly to provide for our family. He loves the best way, or loved the best way that he knew how. So I'm figuring out what's going on. They put my dad in a cop car and they talk to my mom and they go, Kim is in the hospital and she's accusing your dad of rape. Or she, he's a, she's accusing Kevin of rape. What's going on in my mind? I'm 13 years old. I'm like, there's no way. Dad? Kim was always rebellious. She's just trying to run away from our house to do the bad things she wants to do. Automatically, we begin giving my dad the benefit of the doubt and demonizing and villainizing Kim. That was her first reaction. So we go to the hospital. My mom, myself, my uncles. My uncle had just gotten out of prison. He was locked up for 11 years, and he's... You know, he's, he's, he's fierce, he's enraged, he's, you know, he's, he's constantly cursing up a storm. We see Kim. She's a freshman. She's sitting in there bawling her eyes out. And I, I just, I relive this moment often and I remember, and we're like, Kim, what's going on? She's crying and she said, Dad's been raping me for a long time. And we go, stop your effing lying. Stop. And we're cursing at her. And my uncle, I didn't know any better. Um, now I do. My uncle is yelling at her, cursing her, and we're all saying, why are you doing this? You're trying to destroy our family. You're intentionally trying to break our family apart. Stop lying. She's like, no, he's been doing this for several years now. And we're like, you are a liar, because Kim was known for lying. And at that time, we thought, oh, she just wants to go back to her, all the truancy and, and menacing and all that stuff she did. Looking back, she did all of those things to escape her reality of sexual abuse as a little girl. Remember I said, uh, for Asian Americans, your identity is wrapped up in your community? Kim eventually said, okay, I'm lying. I'll recant my t statement. So she recants her statement. She gets put on house arrest because law enforcement is like, why would you do something like this to your family? Look at them, they work hard for you. And this was back in 2002, 2003. Um, and uh, so my dad gets released um, after hours and hours of questioning. 
And from that point out, point on, our family is just like fractured. We feel the tension, and I'm wondering what is real and what's not real. I can't trust my sisters. My sisters, like, wh why would you recant your statement? This is what's going on my my dad. I'm like, why would you recant? I mean, why would you like? Did you do that? Like, and he's hugging me. He's like, no, I would never do something like that. And my grandpa's wondering something is going on here. You see, it all starts to make sense because. I was always excluded from the family. My dad would take camping trips with my sisters, just three of my sisters, not my mom, just my dad and my three sisters in the backyard. I was always excluded from the family. And I was always trying to work so hard to prove myself as a man, but he wouldn't accept me because apparently he was invested in my sisters. Invested. And so we eventually move from the west side. We move to the north side. Uh, when, I'm a, when I was a sophomore or so. And um, uh, things, of course, get worse. Uh, my dad, my parents, they, they, all they knew was farming, and so now they're going doing minimum wage jobs. They're working all night. My sisters and I are left to our vices that night in the evening. So the alcoholism begins to get worse. It begins to get worse. I'm longing for family. I'm doubting what's real. I'm hurting deeply. And I can't even imagine what my sisters are going through. Kim, every night was getting high. And at that time, I just thought, man, you're just crazy. Because right? she was getting more high than me. Um, if I wanted weed, I was like, Kim, you got any? Give me some. Right? Like, it's my younger sister. Um, so I'm getting drunk to drown my sorrow and despair. Meanwhile, I'm searching for family. And I try to find family in the gangs that I knew. Specifically the TRG, Tiny Rascal Gang. They, are, uh, they wear black and gray. And um, they, they, they are enemies with Crips and Blood. So it's like the worst gang to be a part of because they don't get along with anybody. <laughs> I, um, and so, uh, and so I, I start getting involved. I start taking out my rage my anger in street fights, one street fight after another. And I remember specifically going to a party, this time I'm in North Fresno, going to a party down in, in, in Central Fresno and, and uh, um, you know, just wearing this, 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 is, this became my life, right? Not that anyone who wears urban style clothing is a thug or a gangster, right? Because that, that is a style, but this was me. This was me in that I was repping um, West Side, that's me up there with my friends. Here's one guy on the bottom representing Rascals. This is me on the bottom, and my friends captured this photo. I happened to stumble upon it, oh, and I was drunk. I'm just always trying to, and I'm, I'm 16 at this point, 16 or 15. Right. Um, and that's me up there, again, getting drunk, and that, that, that was my teenage years. And I remember going to a party and, and, and wearing these colors, right? That black and gray, just kind of like that. Gray do-rag, black shirt, black hat, all of that stuff. And I remember going and just like um, guys coming up to me and saying, yo, what are you bang? And, and cursing at them and getting jumped in that moment. And, and in that moment, uh, it was on Belmont and, and I can't remember where Blackstone's like, a lot of crime happens there. And uh, um, they switched off the light. They threw me on the ground. They started kicking me and punching me. They threw my friends on the ground. And some of the girls at the party pushes me out. They push me into the car. Um, and I was so, I was, you know, I was, I was enraged. But I was like, man, like, there's, we're, we're surrounded. So I'm just going to hide here. And my first encounter ever with a gun was when it was 1 o'clock in the morning, pitch dark, when I looked to the right of me and I see a guy sneaking with a gun right next to me. And this guy's a blood. 
one of the guys who jumped me. I'm scared to death. My heart's pounding. I pull the lever to my seat and I go all the way back down like this. Um, I'm like, I hope he didn't see me. I hear a gunshot, my friends run out, broken ribs, you know, bruised face and all of that stuff. It didn't matter though, because this was my family. And I needed to take out my rage somewhere. Going back to my family situation, things got worse because accusations, uh, more accusations came out. Not, this time not made by my sisters. Anonymous accusations. And this time not just involving Kim, but involving my other two sisters as well. All three of my sisters. Now I'm like, what, Kim, Tram, did this happen? They're saying no. They're already discredited. They don't, I, I called Kim a year ago, like, man, Kim, I'm so sorry I wasn't there for you. And uh, she's like, you know, and I was like, Kim, Kim, why, why did you keep denying? And she was like, because I was tired of having to, like, none of you guys believed me. No one believed me. You know? And what, what difference would it have made? She was hopeless. Um, she was, she, they, they were hopeless. Um, they saw no light at the end of the tunnel. Judith Herman, uh, author of Trauma and Recovery, says that when trauma victims endure the same trauma over and over and over, they, they, they feel constricted and that they just lose hope and they just give up. Right? It's just, there's no point. That's, that's the body shutting down to preserve itself. And that's what my sisters were doing. Eventually, um, eventually, uh, they get taken by CPS. You see, social workers came, and they were trying to give my dad the benefit of the bout, uh, doubt. Hey, you know, they're, they're asking him, Was this, what, what, what's going on here? Is there punishment involved? Like, what, what is this? They're trying to understand, you know, in Asian culture, I know we're a little more, um, you know, we spank a little more. So... Um, you know, and not seeing my dad get arrested again, I was like, okay, he's, he's telling the truth. Eventually, CPS takes my sisters um, to, uh, um, to foster care, to put them in the foster care system. All three of them. My dad's not arrested. And so I'm wondering if he really did it, why is he not arrested? So for my late middle, early middle, Adolescent years, I'm just wrestling with this. What's real, what's not? Again, longing for family. My sisters are gone. I get into more uh, uh, gang involvement. I never got jumped into this gang. I tried. And I had a friend who said, no, I'm not going to let you go down that path. But he also let me run with them. So, and in my description, I say gang, former or ex-gang affiliate, because I did things on their behalf. I would get into fights, I would rep their set. Uh, one time, um, you know, uh, I got into a fight at a graduation party. Uh, at, not at a graduation party, at a graduation. Well, sorry, I didn't get into a fight, I went down attempting to fight the guy who jumped me. This is at a graduation, at a friend's graduation. I go down and, and we see this guy and we're getting ready to jump him because he had jumped us. And of course, security guards kick us out. Um, and at this time, uh, I had a gun. I was so paranoid. I was so paranoid for my life because of all the fights. I started looking around like, who's following me? Because gangsters in Fresno know each other. They know where the houses are. They mark, they, they, they mark them, that's what they call them. Oh, that's the house on Martin Luther King and Elm. That's the TRG house. Oh, the, the, the Bloods house is right there in the corner. So we go and 
you know, honestly, guys, God's providence is so amazing. Because I go and I get my gun and my friends are like, there's going to be a drive-by tonight. And so I go to the corner of, I go to my friend's house, TRGs, Westside TRGs, and we're anticipating this drive-by. They're, they're saying these bloods are going to come out after the graduation. So we had guys on the rooftop with rifles and a shotgun, me with my 357 Colt revolver. That was absolutely beautiful. Um, <laughs> I bought it on the streets for 200 bucks. It's worth $1,000 now. Too bad it was illegal. Um, <laughs> And I, and I got that just from going into the hood and saying, yo, I need a gun. All right, come back two hours later. All right, come back two hours later. Give me 200 bucks. I got you at 357. So we're waiting. We're anticipating a drive-by. And thank God nothing happened. So we say, all right, let's go shoot them up. So we all get in the car. And as we're driving, uh, one of the guys, I guess he's a little more sane, says, no, they're strapped. They've got AKs and ARs and stuff. They call them choppers. They're strapped. All we got is a shotgun. We got some pistols. And so we don't drive by on the, the bloods. Um, <coughs> instead, we drive away and we start shooting our gun in the air. I sold that gun. I, I realized that I was talking to a, a, a law enforcement in my church the other day. And he was telling me, I was, I was like, we joke around a lot. And I'm like, man, cops never caught me for nothing. And uh, I was like, I've never been caught. And um, I was like, and I, I bought a gun off the street and I sold it back. He was like, you did what? Yeah, I sold it back. He was like, you know that's called arms dealing, right? I was like, what? <laughs> he goes, that's a felon. I go, what? <laughs> like, I, start, I start thinking about it. I'm like, should I not share that part of it? Because like, that gun could be in the wrong hands. Like, man, can I get in trouble? What's the statute of limitations here? Like, you know? Um, but, um, this was my life. This was all I knew. To me, gangs was family. And, and, and I wanted to be a part of something because my family was gone. And they're dealing with all this trauma and all this pain, and they're not at home. And uh, gang violence was a solution. I sold that gun. Um, one night, I, I just couldn't stand it anymore. I, I was a, a, a senior in high school. I want to show a picture. This is me, one of the valedictorians, um, who graduated from Hoover. And this picture really captures the turmoil that was going on in my life. Because I tried hard to, to escape the poverty and all of that stuff. So you can see my GPA. But at the same time, I had a Tupac quote. Because I listened to Tupac every single day. When they were like, hey, you're going to be in the valedictorian book. And, and find a quote, and I'm like, man, like everyone's getting like Einstein quotes and like all these smart quotes, and I'm like, I'm gonna get a Tupac quote. Because keep your head up and pray for better days comes from Tupac's song, Better Days, where he's longing and anticipating for a life without all the violence and all of that stuff. Better days are coming. And that song was the motif in my life. And so this captures the turmoil in that. I'm, a, I'm trying so hard, and yet there are so many external factors holding me down. And so I'm enraged in this photo. I'm, I'm, I'm furious. I'm hurt. There's so much pain that's going on in Tian's life as a senior. So during the Christmas break, I said, forget this. I can't do this anymore. So I lock my door. Turn off my phone, and uh, I take all the medicine we had in the cabinet, 
and started swallowing them. Jar after jar. 100 pills of Tylenol and 50 pills of ibuprofen. That's all we had. Um, didn't tell anyone. And I remember swallowing those jars and drinking it with water and feeling relief. Guys, when you're living in an environment where there are so many factors pushing you down, you don't know what to do, your family system's not there, you don't have a church. We grew up Catholic, but that was like cultural. There wasn't no God or relationship. He's not your father, right? Um, at that time for us. You don't have a support system. It's not like you want to run away, but you feel like that's the only choice you have. That's the best option you have. And so I swallowed everything, and I'm crying, but I'm feeling relief. I'm feeling happy. I feel a sense of peace. I won't be a disappointment to my family. Somehow I felt like a disappointment. Um, I won't have to wrestle with what's real or not. I won't have to fight this pain anymore. I'm feeling good. I'm falling asleep. It's 1 a.m. Take me. Take me, God. I wake up three hours later, vomiting, violently, in the toilet. Brown stuff coming out of my stomach. I'm like, what is that stuff? Is that my liver? Like, I, I didn't know. But I'm like, I thought I'd be dead by now. Like, what is going on? Luckily, I didn't have my gun at that time. Um, but I'm just suffering. The pain is agonizing. And so I put my bag over, a bag over my head. I'm like, oh, can I just suffocate myself? And five minutes pass, and I'm like, this is terrible. It's the worst. You can't do that. Right? Um, so my parents come home from work at 6.30 in the morning. I drive myself to the ER, check myself in. I'm like, hey, you know, I, I, I think I overdosed. I've been throwing up all night. Okay, yeah, fill out this paper and just have a seat. <laughs> I sat there for like an hour and a half. Like, I'm like, wow, I could have died. And I would have come back to haunt you. Um, so they admit me. And um, they say, your liver is severely poisoned. You're lucky to be alive. And we need to keep you in for a couple of weeks. You need to take charcoal, the serum that tastes like fart. <laughs> I kid you not. It seriously does. I cannot drink Sprite anymore because they kept mixing it with Sprite. And like, <laughs> ruin a good drink like that with fart serum. <laughs> Every four hours for two weeks, they wake me up to give me this thing to clean out my liver. <sighs> Man, ruined my favorite drink. So my parents, they're like, they had to call my parents. I'm underage. I'm 17. And my parents are like, why would you do this? I don't know. It was an accident. Son, why would you do this? It was an accident. My uncle comes like, you want to come live with me? No. You're part of the problem, too. You're all part of the problem. Um, I didn't learn. So I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't run away from my problems. Things, still, I'm still taking out my, my, my anger through violence and gang stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking maybe there's something more. There's so many times in my life when I could have been imprisoned or dead. And I look back, I'm like, man, God's providence is so amazing. Right? Um, God must have had been watching over me. Um, I, uh, um, 
So it all culminates in this one event. I'm driving on Blackstone, where most people drive. It's a main strip in Fresno. People are cruising. I'm at a stoplight. This guy looks on over me. Man, when you're Asian and you're in Fresno, it's tough. You look a certain way. I look as square as possible now, so nobody try to think I'm a game ever. You know, like, you know, I, I was all earringed up and wearing tank tops and tatted up. And um, this guy looks over and he's like, yo, what you bang? And I go, F you. Gets out of his car, punches me in the face. My, my window's down. I get up. I punch him. He kicks my car. Beautiful Honda Accord. Dents it. Um, and uh, spits on my face. I go, no, you don't spit in someone's face. I'm getting out of here. I had my fiance at that time in the car with me. Um, 17 and engaged. What um, <laughs> in the world, man? You see, to me, I was growing up fast. I had to do me. I had to live my, my life. And so, anywho, I'm, get, I'm trying to get out of the car. He tells his, his guys, get the gun, get the gun. Shoot him. He's got like six Asians in that little tiny car. I don't know how many guns they got. Um, but I don't care. He spat in my face. So I'm, I'm seeing red. And I'm trying to get out of the car. And my fiance is like, ex-fiance is like, what are you doing? They got a gun. I was like, I don't care. So I'm trying to get out of the car. I'm punching back. And he's pushing the car door in. And she goes, they've got a gun. And I go, oh, shoot. <laughs> this was on a main strip, by the way. Like, right, the, the light's green. Cars are driving by. Apparently, no one cares. Um, <laughs> I drive off. I speed off, because um, I'm like, what am I doing? I have my fiance in there. I pull off after I speed off, and I'm like this, literally. I'm shaking like crazy. And I'm like, what, what am I doing? What's going on with my life? Um, so um, eventually, I met this guy, Roland Hendricks, uh, who was a Christian, uh, and uh, he um, he was an acquaintance. We hated each other at first. He's Haitian-American. I always use the N-word with that G-A at the end, right? Because that was a term of, en of endearment when I grew up. It was like, yo, like, it's like how, how people say, hey, dude. Well, that was me with, hey, fill in the blank. Roland didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> Roland didn't like that. I didn't like him because he was a cocky buff dude, and we're both alpha males. Um, but Roland was always there. We start working out together, interestingly. Roland was a faithful Christian, taking me to these parties. One day, I told Roland, I said, Roland, I think I'm going to get jumped after work. We're at the mall. I'm at the mall. I was like, could you have my back, man? He was like, yeah. And people are like, what's he going to do, throw Bibles at them? <laughs> but he came. Who is this? This Christian thing. Roland was always in my life. He advertises on MySpace, Bible study at my house. I go, man, something needs to change. So I go. I call him first. I'm like, hey, Roland, wh where is this? What's, what is this? He goes, who's this? I go, Tian. He goes, who's this? I'm like, Tian. And he pauses. He's like, is the world ending? <laughs> um, I go to his Bible study. I'd never experienced anything like it. The community, the peace, was something that was so powerful. And I left there feeling... Like, man, there could be something more to this. And um, I studied about God for a few months, investigated for myself, and said, this is what I've been looking for. That family, that longing that I've been experiencing, this is what I've been looking for. 
But I gave my life to God, 2006, um, freshman year of college. Give my life to God, and, and uh, um, now here I am. And it's, it's been difficult because of all the trauma that I face, and I can't even imagine what my sisters... So now, my sisters and I are reconciled, and I've apologized, and I've listened, and I've, I've, I've begged for forgiveness for invalidating their pain. Um, one of the sisters, Kim, the oldest one, who uh, had been suffering for longer, um, her trauma is so deep that she gets psychosomatic induced seizures. Her seizures are not associated with any physical thing. They've done all the scans. She's seizures on a weekly basis. Tram, she's struggling um, as a mother. She, she got pregnant at 16, and, uh, and I, I used that as an opportunity to pour myself into her. I was a, a Christian, and now she's baptized. She's a Christian, trying to live, but still, that trauma works against her. They tried trauma, th Tram tried trauma therapy. It's too much for her to handle. I was in trauma therapy for over a year. Uh, and it was one of the most difficult things I've done in my life. But I'm healed, thanks to God and thanks to um, people God uses. Because um, on the level of PTSD, I didn't know I had trauma. I didn't know how to identify. I'd wake up cursing, sweating. One time I was at a youth event. People in the living room, we were all sleeping together. Uh, youth rally or something like that. Four o'clock in the morning, I wake myself up like, F you! <laughs> I'm looking around, I'm like, I'm hoping no one is up. <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing until I was married and my wife would soothe me at night. Uh, apparently, on, when I went to go see this therapist, he was like, on the level of PTSD, on the level of 1 to 10, you're on an 8. And I can only imagine where my sister's on. Um, so, why does this matter? Why, why does this story matter? And I, I want to share this story because I want to try and dismantle some very harmful things Christians say and believe. I had a conversation with someone close to me a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the rising rate of crime in Fresno. And he starts, he starts going off on gangsters. Oh, they should know what's right and wrong. They're evil. They should, you know, like, everyone has this morality, and it's all their fault. And I'm thinking, why are you you're just demonizing them? Why are you demonized? There's so much more underneath all of that, right? And I think we are responsible for our actions as adults to, to a certain extent, but, but I think Christians assume that everyone had a wonderful, stable upbringing like they did. But that's just not true. I, I feel like when I have these conversations with people who've been Christians all their lives, they, they assume that everyone had two parents in a stable environment, you weren't in an impoverished neighborhood, you had equal education, you had books that weren't torn and ripped by the spine, right? You had all of these things, you had, you had the, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to play sports and all of that stuff. I mean, like, not everyone had that upbringing. I didn't, and most of my friends out in West Fresno didn't either. And so there are external, I, I want to help us understand that there are external influences that shape and influence who we become, right? External factors that shape and influence who we become. We know this to be true. By the way, if you have questions, feel free, right? I'm going to try to leave a, a little chunk of time at the end for questions. But if you have questions or clarifications or whatever, I love interaction. Um, we know this to be true. 
2 Timothy. Timothy's faith is a byproduct of his, uh, of Lois and, and Eunice's faith, right? External factors influencing his faith. On the other hand, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Factors influencing who he became, for better or worse. And so sinful and ex oppressive external influences hinder human beings, or can hinder human beings from flourishing, can entrench human beings in trauma-induced sin, the suffering that perpetuates a cycle of sinfulness. Consider this. What if you witness your loved ones right now get beheaded? Right now. Or when you go home, or whatever. You have no control over this. You cannot do it. You're powerless. What if you witness them get beheaded, and then your home burns down? All of your memories gone. Everything you knew, gone. Your whole family killed, murdered. You're, you're, you're seeing this. And then you get displaced in a foreign country where you don't understand the language. But it's not just any foreign country. You're, you're in a foreign country where there's significant poverty. You have no, barely any assistance. Imagine what kind of position you'd be in, right? Imagine the choices you'd have. How do you even survive? It's inconceivable how you would survive a trauma like that. It's unimaginable. Well, in Long Beach and Oakland, Long Beach, California, Oakland, California, you have some of the worst, uh, highest concentrations of Southeast Asian American gangs. Why? Why? We've got to ask ourselves, why? What do you see when you dig deeper? You see that Cambodian Americans are operating from trauma that they experienced in the mid-70s and on. One-third of the Cambodian population was decimated. Almost two million people in a genocide. In a genocide, people beheaded. Families witnessing all of this stuff. You see, when people say that Asians are immigrants, they had the choice to come in. Well, Cambodian, Cambodians did not have the choice. They had to flee Cambodia, but with significant trauma, right? They're displaced. And then not only did America dis uh, 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 relocate them, America relocated them in uh, systemically impoverished areas in America that's already suffering from racist policies like redlining or blockbusting. Now imagine, right? How are you supposed to flourish under those conditions? In a study of 586 Cambodian Americans from the ages 35 to 37 in Long Beach, 99% suffered from near-death starvation. 90% had a family friend murdered. 70% was exposed to heroin violence. Cambodian Americans had at least 10 traumas in their life. And so what happened? This trauma arrests your mental faculties. Judith Herman says um, one of the, the, the symptoms that we display is constriction. Your body shuts down. It disassociates. But if you can't disassociate, you cope. What do you cope with? Whatever you can. And then parents aren't able to parent because they're dealing with their own trauma. So what do you think the kids are doing? They're having to defend themselves. They're having to fight for themselves. Now, they're living in Long Beach, Fresno, Oakland, Memphis. They're living in these areas. They're dealing with racism. 
Oh, go back to your country, chink. So everything is compounded. Everything is compounded. They're in an unstable environment. So what do you get? You get gangs. Asian-American gangs. And they were formed because of all of this stuff. Sinful external influences hinder human potential for flourishing. It's not just individual choice. It's external factors as well. Any questions real quick? Yeah, Faith. Repeat that statement just made. Sinful. Sinful external influences hinder human potential for flourishing. This is Reggie and his little brother. They're from Southwest Fresno, and I used to mentor Reggie and his little brother. Sweet kids. Reggie is in eighth grade in this photo, and his little brother um, in sixth grade. Good, good kids. Um, my friend Roland and I are trying to mentor these teens. Um, Reggie's from South Fresno, which you see, if you look up Fresno, Google Fresno redlining, you'll see the south side of Fresno is where no one wants to traverse, filled with gangs, violence, all of this stuff. If you look up redlining Fresno, you'll see that it is the way it is because of racist housing discrimination in the 30s where people were not allowed to, uh, prohibited or, or discouraged from investing in South Fresno. What do you have when you have no resources in South Fresno and it's all allocated to North Fresno? You have a community in the South having to defend itself, fend for itself. This is Reggie in eighth grade. So he's enraged, he's furious, he's always angry. We start softening, God starts softening his heart. And, um, and uh, one day we're talking about turning the other cheek and Reggie goes, but what if you get jumped? Because the other day I was walking down Dog Pound. They said I looked like a Muhammad. A Muhammad in, in Fresno, I don't know if this is just a Fresno thing, I've never researched this, is a particular black American who has distinct facial features. Now in Southwest Fresno, uh, racism towards Muhammad was very strong. Oh, you're a Muhammad. It's almost like you're expected to do bad in class. Um, Muhammad's had, you know, were darker. Um, had more pronounced noses. Um, at least that was the stereotype, right? That was the stereotype. So because he looked like a Muhammad, he would get jumped. Eighth grade, not his choice to get jumped. He did nothing wrong to get jumped. Just walking down the street, he's getting beaten up, right? It explains his rage. It explains his anger and his frustration. He had another brother whom we were mentoring, who died. I uh, received news a couple years ago that he got shot up. Interesting question. I mean, it's, it's saddening. You see the consequences of these inter external influences, right? I'm not trying to make an excuse for sin or crime. I'm trying to offer an explanation. Because, and that's why I try to share my story. When we have an explanation, right, when we have an explanation, it becomes easier to embody empathy and grace. We need an explanation. You look at my sisters. They're not doing very well. They're not flourishing. Why? External influences. And me, it's because of God worked in my life through other people who were not judgmental, who welcomed me, who were not afraid of me. So I want you to see that there are layers underneath. You see the gangs, and the crime, and the substance abuse, and the prostitution, and the surface, but underneath, guys, ladies and, and, and gentlemen, 
You have sin, which mars relationships, distorts relationships. Underneath all of that, you have abuse and trauma and lack of opportunity and racism and poverty and oppression and powerlessness and exploitation. And these are the external stuff that is creating that stuff up at top. And if church wants to be a powerful force, we've got to stop looking at that top stuff and look at the bottom stuff. You've got to look at that bottom stuff. There's hurt underneath. And so we've got to understand this, and we've got to understand that, man, people aren't just their problems. There's pain. And so what does the church do? Move in. Encounter people's pain. Come into contact with their pain. Step out of your insular communities. Immerse yourself in their pain. Because I think when we can see the impact of injustice on other people, it makes it easier to see beyond the labels we give people. They're no longer just that thug or that madness, that truant. They're no longer just these things. Yet the church, I think, sometimes perpetuate language like that. Bryant Myers, author of Walking with the Poor, says that, um, he says, sin mars one's identity and purpose. And so he says, he says uh, uh, sin forces people to forget their purpose and their value, their intrinsic image of God. This is what sin does. And we perpetuate this marred identity, the church. We don't even know it. It's subtle. Calling people thugs, menaces, calling people illegals. Well, look at that illegal. They're illegals. Wait, what? How dare you just label someone a person of dignity made in the image of God as an illegal? How about I call, go around calling you a gluttonous person? A porn user? Or how would you feel? Like I start identifying you by these issues, right? I mean, you literally dehumanize people. And guess what? That's how s- slavery? Dehumanization. Oh, you're only three-fifths of a person. You're not a whole person. The, 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 the genocide of Native Americans? Oh, they're savages. Dehumanizing language. Right? They're savages. So let's kill them. Marring their identity. And so the problem is this. When we mar their identity, it doesn't just affect them, it affects us. The more we dehumanize someone the less human we become. The more we use these labels to identify people, these dehumanizing labels, the less human we become. We become less empathetic and more callous and less like Jesus. Sapir-Whorf hypothesis says that language shapes perception. It's, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it, it happens, right? Um, and so I want to encourage us to understand the stories underneath all of the pain and, and the problems and, and all of this stuff that you might see. Encounter the pain in order to soften your heart. Um, I think it's hard. I think it's difficult to label, and marginalize, and hate others when you get real and raw and intimate with their pain. When, you get, when you're sitting in the face of their pain and you're hearing it, it's difficult. It's difficult. 
And we know that Jesus uh, encountered people's pain. The woman at the well in John 4, right? Oh, you got five husbands. The one you have right now isn't even your husband. You're, you need something more. You need the living water. This is what you did. The source of her pain was that she was longing for something more, right? It wasn't, it wasn't her issues. He went deeper. The, the healing of the leper in Matthew 8, 1 to 3. Jesus encountered his pain. If you look, how did he heal the leper? He touches the leper. Jesus didn't have to do that. They could have just said, you're healed. He didn't have to touch the leper, and yet he did. He encountered his pain, his longing for love and embrace and acceptance and all of that and so forth. So until we see the image of God in people, we're always going to define them by their problems and by our prejudices. And the source of all this is we've got to see the image of God in people. Sin mars this image, such as in my sister's instance, in mine when I was younger. And let me tell you what, church. I think we, we forget that um, people are made in the image of God, that some people have more to offer than others, and that's not true. I've learned more about community from gangsters and from the poor than I have from the church. One time, um, we move out to this place called uh, Sin City in Fresno. They don't use it, but they don't call it that anymore. And this is before I left to Hardy. And a very impoverished community. It's called Sin City because of all the violence and all the drug abuse and all this stuff. Um, most people don't want to go to Sin City. Well, I'm there, and I'm like, you know, it's a good opportunity to build relationships and, and meet with people and, and do ministry. And so uh, um, I start talking with people, and I start building relationships. And this is, this is a very impoverished neighborhood. And I had a motorcycle at that time, and guys would be like, yo, I got you. They were looking at your bike wrong. I got you, T. They had my back. Always. Hey, we're having a barbecue. Come on over. I wanted to braid my hair. I wanted to get cornrows. I had really long hair at that time. She only charged me five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> only five bucks? How much does that cost? How much does that cost? A lot. Five bucks! She cornrowed my hair. People giving rides for each other. Um, the poor have a lot to offer. Gangsters have a lot to offer. And I've heard a lot of stories. Um, and then a transformed gangster is a force to be reckoned with. I tell you what, man, it's like Paul. It's, it's beautiful, it's, it's amazing. Um, I left that neighborhood and, and, and people are like, oh, we got, and my dad was still living there because I went to Harding for undergrad. And they were like, oh, We'll look out for your dad for you. You got his back. Um, and so, by the way, my dad um, never, I asked my sisters, why is he not in jail? And they said, at that time, they never pressed charges. Um, and I ended up believing them, my sisters, because one day, when I was studying the Bible with my uh, second sister, Trem, um, you know, I've been working, well, God's been working on, in her life for, for years, and um, she was getting a little more serious, and we sat down, we were talking about baptism and conversion and what, what all that entails. And she goes, here's my one issue. If God was real, why did he let all that happen to me? I go, oh man, she must be a good liar for her to lie all the way up to now. She's not a liar. 
I was like, wow, it's so real. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that um, that was a little a little off topic, but people are made in the image of God, and so uh, I think we've got to get to the heart of all of that, right? And uh, Judith says that Judith Herman says that trauma can only be healed through authentic, genuine relationships, and I think trauma-induced sin can only be healed through first the cross um, and authentic relationships and community. And when I went to the church, I I was like, first of all, I went to this Bible study and then I started getting engaged with the church. I remember walking into that church and I was like, what is this? I'd never seen so many white people in my life. (laughs) It's like snow down there. (laughs) Um, Because I was on the second floor. I was like, I don't belong here. But I found a group of people who, Cedric and Santos, and these were people who were on the streets who did similar things and they saw me for the image of God. Baggy pants, piercings all over, one person, my friend asked me to give a testimony. I slipped out a curse word during that testimony. Like, um, you know, he got in trouble for that. Don't bring him back. Um, <laughs> um, they saw the image of God in me. Um, and uh, I think church, move in. Encounter people's stories, their pain. See the image of God in them. There's so much more than what we see in this surface. So... We have five minutes till class ends. I want to know if there are any questions. Yes? Um, okay, so this may seem like a silly question, maybe not, but um, how did you get out of your game? Because, like, what if we were to reach out to someone who is in one and they, and they, want, um, they want a different life? But I know, stereotypically, as far as I know, it's very difficult to get out of that situation. So, so I want to clarify, I was never jumped into the game. Okay. To... to, to Keyword affiliate, I repped them, I did crime on their behalf, but I never was in the gang. I was never jumped in, which involves a process, um, and I was never in it, right? Um, but in terms of gangs and thugs and all of that, authentic relationships, I think each gang is different, um, but if you build those relationships um, with them and, and build this trust and walk them through all of that, sometimes they will let you go. Right? Sometimes they will let you go. Other times they'll know it's a sacrifice, which means they're going to have to disconnect from that entire community. Um, so it's kind of like a multifaceted um, answer. But a lot of my friends no longer like me. Um, so I'm a sellout. So, but I was never in the game. Anyone else? I saw him. Yes? I was curious, um, like moving in and encountering people's pain, how basically, like, you try to encounter someone, um, you go and work with them or whatever, how hard is it for them, do you think, to even admit their pain? I mean, isn't it kind of a a thing where they're too tough to have that pain? I mean, I'm not trying to sound stereotypical here, but doesn't it kind of make them feel like if they admit their pain from their background or whatever, that they are week that they're I mean is it is it tough to work through that uh it depends on the person for me I was at a point in my life when when I heard the gospel I was like there's a second chance there's hope there's something better awaiting for me um it has taken years through trauma therapy and all this other stuff to dig down to to the root of my brokenness but it depends on the person key important thing here is 
genuine authentic relationships. Gangs are coming from a place of, uh, of, of profound community. And the church must be that for them. There is no room. I mean, we're, I know we're broken, we're flawed. But Francis Chan gives a story about how he baptized a gang member. They came, he came in. He was a part of the church. He ended up leaving because that church was not a community for him. And sometimes it must be, it could be just a few people, right? But authentic relationships. Faith? Um, um, two, just first, a really quick one. Um, I saw that you mentioned that you Thomas there. Was that oh. like an Americanization, or is your name Thomas Tian? You know, <laughs> <laughs> On my birth certificate, my mom gave me a Thomas and Tian, and a middle name and last name. Okay. So, I, for my first half of my life, I went by Thomas. When I moved to the north side, I went by Tian. And second part is how do you how do you keep from communicating church as a a manifestation of being white American mm. um, when you're encountering uh, particularly gangs of other ethnic groups. Mm. How, how you, you know, meaning be like us, meaning being white American as, a, mm. as opposed to being a part of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, how do you kind of, because it seems like you navigate it very well, you mean, it seems like I navigated it when I transitioned from that into the church? When you talk to people, it seems like you're able to move in, you know, without uh, saying, come be white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't give off the vibe that, that come be white. I mean, it's just really appreciating and valuing what they have to offer. And I think listening, empathetic listening is key to that. Um, not everyone can do it. Right? And so being very hyper aware of your language and body language, I think, is important. Yeah, Lawrence? Yeah, um, I have a quick question. So um, since you came into the church, you've experienced many different types of churches. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, the church that you came into, what attracted you to it? What made you feel comfortable? And the other churches you've experienced, what are some things that will make a person who comes from your background feel like they aren't welcome at that church? Mm. What made me feel accepted in that first church I went to, this was a church of 800, it was a large church, but there was a group of people who were almost like an abnormality to that church. They were vulnerable and transparent and they were real and Cedric was wearing urban clothing. They were there and, 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 and he talked about his testimony. All that stuff was so real and powerful to me. The stuff that's made in that second question was? Yeah, so like, thing, so the churches you've experienced, uh -huh. what are some things that would have made you not want to be a part of that church in your younger self? Um, the polarization, the dismissal of minority experiences and all that suffering and stuff. I would not want to, it's been particularly difficult for me um, in some of the churches I've served because of the language and rhetoric that's been pushed. So vulnerability and transparency and, and genuine relationships. Yes? How, when you're talking to folks in the churches that, you know, like myself, who come from a typical white suburban American background, mm -hmm. who I can intellectually understand yeah. what you've been through, what your experiences <clears throat> are, but I haven't, but having not experienced them, how, what can we, what can someone who comes from such a different background do to be truly empathetic and realize these are real. Yeah. And not just make it sound like, well, I know in my head that that's going on, but really try to understand 
as a real, you know, as deep down in your heart what that's, what that's done to someone to have to have not experienced that. Your language that you're using, this is real. My wife right here, Amanda, beautiful woman. Uh, I don't know how I got her, but because um, I got game. And, um, and she likes bad boys. She likes bad boys. Um, she kind of lived uh, suburban. She was poor, but almost lived a suburban life. Um, the empathy that she displayed. Her whole family, uh, you know. Um, the language, the body language. Again, I, I know it sounds a little redundant, but I think listening is key to this. Brene Brown. Um, I think if you look her up, she has a book, Braving the Wilderness, and she has stuff on YouTube about vulnerability and the power of transparency and listening to one another. It's very effective. Maybe one or two more. I know we've got to close. Yes? Um, I was just curious, too, how has your family reconciled, in particular, the relationship with your father, yourself, and your It's been very difficult. Um, my father never his punishment right now like he's not imprisoned um his punishment right now is that there's no family there for him which again for asian americans is very pronounced um they don't talk to him as a son i feel the responsibility to help take care of him uh, he deeply regrets what he's done but it's just very tense and it's something we wrestle with on on the daily yeah maybe one more and i think time is up yes I wanted to hear about the therapy, how you sought therapy and how you paid for it. I mean, is oh. it usually very expensive? Yeah, it was, it was pricey. Um, I sought therapy because I knew I was messed up. I was still falling back to old habits. And uh, I, I felt addictive tendencies. So I looked him up, I, I saw uh, references, and I saw that he, he specifically deals with trauma therapy. It's called EMDR, if you're in ministry or whatever, someone's dealing with trauma, addiction, um, the kind of therapy you, you want them to seek is EMDR therapy. And it forces you, it desensitizes you um, to all of the trauma so that it no longer affects you. I paid for it by sacrificing my finances. Uh, I'm a big fan of therapy, and uh, I think you just have to make that sacrifice. What does EMDR stand for? Eye movement rapid desensitization or something like that. You'll have to Google it. Yeah, just look up EMDR. Make sure the person specializes. They have to specialize. They have to be trained in it because it's a dangerous process. Thank you very much for being part of the